Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Mobile hunters, are you looking to make the move to saddle hunting this year? Or maybe you just want to add a few new pieces of gear or upgrade your current saddle gear. If that's the case, then head over to tetherednation.com where they've got all mobile hunters covered. Whether you're new to saddle hunting or an old timer, Tethered is your one-stop saddle shop. From saddles to ropes, sticks, ascenders, whatever it is you need, they have you covered. I've personally been using their gear for the past three seasons. Now my base setup consists of the Phantom Saddle and the Predator Platform. And if you're wondering why, I've chosen to use their gear above all else. Here's the cliff notes. They're innovative and pushing the mobile hunting forward overall. They cut no corners and prioritize the safety and performance of their gear. They care about the community that they've created and their gear allows me to hunt free. And above all else, I like to support good people doing good work. If you're interested in upping your mobile hunting game, then head to tetherednation.com. This podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. Skull Brew Coffee roasts premium single-origin coffee, guaranteed to deliver the freshest coffee directly to your doorstep. The kicker? They're 2% for conservation certified and donate 10% of their proceeds back to organizations who support the interests of our hunting community. So go to SkullBrewCoffee.com and pick up one of their three killer roasts and fuel your hunt and fill more tags with Skull Brew Coffee. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 224. Today, my buddy Chad Sylvester and I are answering your listener questions, so stay tuned. everyone happy wednesday to you hope you're doing well hope you are feeling fine hope that you had a good holiday weekend got to spend some time with friends and family that's what i did i had actually headed back to the hometown I hadn't seen my wife's parents since september i think um there was some illness in the family and so forth that that occurred around the holidays this this fall slash winter 
that kept us from being able to go back to see them. So the last time we actually saw them was it was over uh, spring when we were back over the holiday weekend right before you jump into September and so forth. So it had been a little while since we had been back there. And what I had remembered when we had uh, as we were driving back was at my dad's uh, property. I had hung a, tra- a couple of trail cameras for him in September and remembered that I had never gone to check them. And so I was super stoked to check them because I know my cousin actually hunted the property a couple times and had seen, um, I don't know if he saw him while he was hunting, but I know he saw, saw this just hammer deer, I think either walking off of my dad's property or walking onto the property when he was driving in or leaving at, you know, either before or after one of his hunts. And it was a pretty big deer. He took some video of it and sent, he had enough time to take some video of it and send it, uh, send it to me or send it to my dad. My dad sent it to me and it was a big deer. Um, so that was pretty cool. And so I never made it back to, to try to hunt him or anything like that. Cause I was gone, you know, most of the fall for, you know, out of state and so forth. So I was interested to go back to just see, you know, the, he's owned it for a couple of years and I've, uh, I think I've hunted it maybe twice or three times, maybe in the past couple of years. Um, but I wanted to shed hunt it to see if maybe I could find this deer shed, uh, deer sheds. I didn't think that he was he was living on it necessarily, but we've had an abnormally kind of hard winter uh, around here than, you know, I guess harder than what we've had in, in previous years. And there's a handful of really good thermal cover on this property. And so I thought, man, if there's anywhere that he might have dropped sheds, if he was spending any time on this property, that it might be here. And then on the opposite side of the road, they actually clear cut. The neighbors did a big clear cut. And so... It's going to be slamming, you know, on the neighbor's property in like, you know, next year and the year after for a couple of years after that, once that starts to kind of fill in a little bit. But for this year, there's really no cover there. There's no food there at the moment. Um, and as gnarly as this past winter was with the snowfall and stuff like that, I thought, you know, maybe even if that big deer didn't drop his sheds there, I thought maybe I'd find <clears throat> find a couple sheds laying, laying around potentially scoured the whole thing. Didn't find a single shed. But what I did find was I think where that deer if it wasn't that deer it's another decent buck i had uh, actually when i checked the cameras there was another good buck uh if not two that were on one of the cameras and i think i found where they were spending some time um so you know if there's a decent deer on camera that might be a place where i can make uh make an ambush but i had two cameras that were hung checked the one camera um and it was an area that i hadn't hung cameras before i was just kind of curious um and i actually got some good intel there two really good deer for the area, um, that were on that, that were on that camera and actually found a pretty hammer rub in a, in an area. Um, that's kind of like almost like this, it's not CRP, but it's just like real small brushy trees and kind of like tall grass, kind of, you know, gnarly brushy little area. Um, so that was cool. Kind of figured out where they were spending some time in that, in that general area. And there are deer in this particular area, just nonstop. I think that that's more of a, um, rut hunt. Uh, cause there was does all around, but the bucks didn't really show up there in daylight until like mid October, um, once or twice. And then, you know, of course around prime time, starting around the 28th of October is whenever it really started picking up. So it feels like that area of the property is probably more, you know, rut oriented. Um, and really I think the property in general is just a, a rut property for the, for the most part. Um, you know, there's not a uh, great food on the property necessarily. The neighbors don't really have great food. A lot of the fields and the farms that are around there are put into like the, I guess what it's called in PA, the CREP program probably, I think is what it is, which, you know, which is essentially just, you know, a watershed program to keep farmers from putting fertilizers and stuff on the ground. If, if memory, if memory serves and the government will give you a certain amount of money to, to do that. And especially it's popular for maybe, you know, farms that aren't 
uh, making money off of agriculture anymore and are just kind of family, you know, family properties, so, so to speak. So check that camera. Good pool went to the second camera that I had that I was really stoked on. Cause I thought I was like, based on where my cousin had told me where he had seen this deer, I didn't think I would see him on that camera unless maybe he was just like, you know, he's cruising of course. So maybe he would make it by that camera. But, um, there's an area that historically gets, you know, a bunch of scrapes laid down in this area. You know, it's really weird. This area, like this property has a lot of rubs and just one spot is where I find scrapes. Just one single spot. And there'll be a handful of them, but you know, they're all kind of like close to open areas. So I, I know they're all being laid down at night or being tended at night. And so you can't really, you can't really hunt them. It's just the weirdest thing. It's like, I really never find scrapes anywhere else except in this one, in this one spot. So I obviously hang a camera in this spot because I know it's a good place to just, if nothing else, get inventory. And what I've learned over time on this property, just from running cameras on it, is that usually deer you see in one area of the farm, you don't typically see, or on the property, you don't typically see in the other area. So deer that are on the west side of the property typically don't make it to the to the east side. It's really, really odd. And it's deer that you see in the northern part of the property, you don't really ever see in the southern part of the property. Um, just the years that I've run cameras on there and watched, like you rarely saw deer kind of cross, you know, all a bunch of different, a bunch of different cameras, which is, um, which I just find kind of interesting. I'm not sure exactly why that's the case. Um, but even whenever I, you know, I put a food plot in for my dad one year, that was still the case. It wasn't like it was drawing deer from a different area of the property to the, to the food. So anyway, went to check this camera cause I thought if that big deer was on camera, it would probably be that one. Cause he would probably hit that. He'd probably hit any one of those scrapes that's in that general area. And so I went to pull the card, set that camera in September as well. So of course the full season on it, uh, the camera card that I did pull still had battery left in it, which was awesome. So I was, had high hopes that this one would have battery left too. And I would have like the full season up through like when they, you know, dropped antlers or whatever, got up, super excited, go to pull the card camera, not on. So I forgot to turn the camera on in September whenever I was leaving. I remember I was leaving to get back for a, a family member's birthday party that day whenever I was hanging those cameras and I kind of went and did it quickly and uh, yeah, forgot to turn the camera on. So I'm going to guess that big deer was probably on there. He was probably daylight active, probably a bunch of good camera intel and I got squad douche. So if that's not like one of the worst feelings ever is walking up on a camera you've been letting soak for you know what, I guess it's close six, seven months now that it's been soaking. Um, and you've got nothing on it. That's a pretty, that's a pretty big bummer. But, uh, anyway, um, not a whole lot is lost. Cause I don't know that I'll even have time to get back to hunt that this year. I have a bunch of good areas around here to hunt, um, this next upcoming weekend, especially since I'm prioritizing going North and getting into the mountains, I'm headed back North this weekend with the dog and the travel trailer headed back to where I got my butt kicked. I have, a, I think, a little bit better of a plan, and it's been warm enough recently that all the snow should be gone at this point, you know, so I shouldn't have to contend with that, which will be good. Um, and I have a little bit better of a plan as to how I'm going to kind of break this area down because it's there's a lot of public land in this area. I mean, to the tune of hundreds of thousands of acres. So, you know, covering it, you're not going to do. And so you got to not get intimidated and kind of start breaking it down in chunks and find little pockets that you're going to kind of explore. And so I've done that, kind of had a criteria for determining what I'm going to go look at and what I'm not going to go look at. That way I can try to be as efficient as, efficient as possible. Um, I would like to get up there this time and maybe one more time to scout. We'll see if that 
if that actually happens, maybe a turkey hunt up there potentially. Uh, but we'll see. So I'm really hoping, like, if I don't find some decent stuff to at least hang some cameras on this trip, then I'm not sure how how often, you know, I'll make it up to necessarily hunt it uh, if I don't have, you know, great, great intel to, to go off of. And it might be one of those situations if I'm getting smoked around here, I might just make a trip up there and kind of freestyle hunt it. Um, but that's a that's a risky proposition with that much property or that much land to try to cover, to try to freelance hunt something like that. So, um, but we'll see, you know, I'm hoping holding out hope that this weekend will, will bear, bear some, some good fruit. So with that, we'll go ahead and jump into today's podcast. Have a cool show for you guys today. This is part number two of the session that I did with my buddy, Chad Sylvester from Exodus outdoor gear. So we're going to pick this up in progress. Uh, the first session was just, he and I kind of catching up on our seasons, the good, the bad, the ugly. This session though, however, is he and I, uh, doing a listener Q and a session. So we talk about everything from gear tweaking to e-scouting, buck bedding, podcasting, you know, hottest counties in Pennsylvania to, to hunt for, for bow hunting, whitetails, you know, anything under the sun, we pretty much cover in this session. So we're going to go ahead and get jumped into today's podcast. And as always, I want to thank you all for listening. Anyway. So at this point, I think, uh, we can jump into the, uh, the listener Q and a portion of this podcast, man, this is always one of my favorite things to do with you is the listener Q and a sessions. Um, people always write in some good, good questions and it's kind of like the question we just had. It makes you kind of think right about things a little bit differently when, it, you know, cause it's not things you necessarily ponder every day, but this yeah. one's pretty straightforward. So <clears throat> I'll ask you, you can go, you can go first on this one. Any gear changes that you have for this year? Is there any updates or anything that you're changing with your, with your setup, your bow, you know, sticks, you know, whatever you might be using in the timber. Yeah. Um, two big changes. One is a, a new bow. Oh, um, I, yeah. Um, I'm retiring the Halon six and I have a Nexus two being built right now. Uh, it's about three weeks out. So I'm excited to get, uh, to get that. Um, I should say I'm retiring the Halon six. I'm still keeping it for backup bow. I know a lot of guys sell their bows or, whatnot but um it's one of been one of my favorite bows i've ever owned so in the past i've regretted you know selling my past bow and Mm -hmm. not having a backup in case something dumb happens or so i'm going to hang on to that just um you know keep it as wall art i guess but Mm -hmm. excited about the about the new prime and i'm making some type of big upgrade in glass Mm -hmm. whether that is a Stronger magnification pair of binos or a spotting scope or possibly both. Um, hmm. Those are the two big things. And there's a bunch of small stuff for this Western trip. Um, there's a good chance it's going to be a backcountry backpack hunt, at least mm-hmm. part of it. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, there's, there's camp equipment um, Tents, that needs to stuff be purchased. Like yeah. 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 Nice. That kind of stuff. So, but the bow and the bow and new glass are the two biggest things, which you know, the bow is the bow, you know, that's everybody yeah. gets a new bow every, every so often you just got a new one, but the glass I think is going to be, um, a big part of Kansas too. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. No doubt. Uh, it's interesting, man. You're making the switch to uh prime from Matthews. That's mm-hmm. a, that's a, that's a jump. What was it? What was it about the, uh, the prime that was, that was selling you? Well, it's the Versus first the Matthews bow or, or, I mean, I guess what other one did, what all did you shoot? So, well, the reason I went with the Nexus, or mm-hmm. the Nexus 2, um, I've had several times this year where 
I've had my bow at full draw for a long amount of time. Mm-hmm. Actually, the last two years. Um, and I mean, like over 60 seconds, which yeah. 60 seconds doesn't sound like a lot. Dude, when you're holding the bow back, that's a long-ass time. It's uh, it's forever. And um, at the end of that, like, there's been a couple times where I've, I've, I've had to let down. Uh, one of the does that I shot in the late season here, I drew, I drew on her three times just because, like, I was holding, I was holding, I was holding, and then something happened, didn't have the shot, and I had to let down, move my bow over to the other side of the tree or whatever. Um, so Prime's always been known for kind of their their back wall and mm-hmm. the amount of let off. Like, you're holding next to zero weight there. Yep. So that was one um, one thing that I liked about it. The other thing, this the Nexus platform is the first – to my knowledge, it's the first bow they've really gotten real speed out of. Mm. So the IBO speed's in the mid-340s, <laughs> which for Prime is a lot faster than anything that they've ever done in the past. And they've gotten away, they've done a better job with making the bow more efficient than their recent models. Um, I know like their Black Series guys complained about the hand shock and about the noise mm-hmm. because you know the bow just wasn't quite as efficient for whatever reason. I mean, I'm not an engineer, so I right. don't know why, but... Um, they've seen that they have that stuff figured out in this platform. So, and it's like, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of, um, I don't want to say a hater, but like you get guys that are just like, that's why I never shot Matthews before is growing up. That's all everybody talked about was a solo cam. Matthews is Matthews. That. And I didn't want to shoot Matthews just because everybody else was shooting one. So right. I shot both tech seemed like forever. But then when I finally made the switch to Matthews, I was super happy with it and ended up being, you know, one of my one of my favorite bows. But ultimately, the reason why I didn't buy a um V3, the 31 inch V3, um was that I just felt like I needed to start going to a, a, a longer, a longer mm-hmm. bow, um, get rid of that super steep string angle which matthews isn't terrible because their cams yeah. are so damn big on the on those yeah yeah your um, axle so th- axle is like 31 but like the true axle axle right. at the edge of the cam is more like 34 <laughs> you know right or- and and the riser on that bow is like insanely long yeah um the limbs are really parallel so it was be- it was between one of those one of those two um and i just felt like i need to switch it up and yeah you know if i sh- if I shoot it for four months and I don't like it, I still have my Halon six and you know, there's nothing yep. saying that if, um, you know, I'm not happy with it, I just won't go back to Matthew. So, yeah, yeah, no, that's cool, man. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, I picked up a bow last year, so I won't be, I won't be new bowing it, um, this year I am planning. Well, I shouldn't say I won't be, um, I don't plan to be new bowing it this year. Um, I am going to do a YouTube video and go out at my local archer shop here and, uh, here around where I live, this place called Bob and AJ's, a buddy of mine, Wilson, works out there and he tunes my bow for me and stuff like that. It's actually where I picked up my Matthews this last time. I'm going to go out there and shoot, uh, I think, the the primes that they have there. They've got some Bowtex. Uh, they're a big Matthews dealer, so I'll shoot the the new Matthews. Um, and I feel like there's one more out there that I'm going to that I'm gonna shoot, and I can't think of what it is. There's one more brand that they have. The one bow that I wanted to shoot and I couldn't get my hands on was the new Expedition. I think it's the X30. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody was raving about it, and unfortunately, there's just not a a dealer close enough that it made sense for me to go to go shoot it. Right. Yeah. So I'm gonna go out and shoot the the bows that they have at the shop and do basically a YouTube video of it and 
Wilson's going to do it with me and provide like the specs because he's the one who does the setups. So he knows the bows in and out, you know, and he can talk about that. And I can just talk about it from the shooter's perspective of how it shot, what I liked about it, what I didn't like about it. Um, and then we'll see if anything stands up. Cause I really like the VXR 28 that I'm shooting now. Like it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, uh, it's probably my favorite bow to this point that I've ever, that I've ever shot. It's just smooth. It It's an easy shooter. It's accurate. <laughs> I drug it through the woods, the all off sea or the whole season and took it over to, uh, Wilson, uh, this past weekend. And he just made sure like, you know, my timing was a little bit out, which wasn't crazy because the string maybe stretched a little bit because it was brand new when I picked it up. Um, but like the center shot was still on, like, you know, after I think I dropped it twice and drug it through brush, you know what I mean? So, and after all that, it's still kind of, you know, it was holding on to like, you know, being, being able to shoot well, he moved, uh, he changed the timing just a little bit and I shot an arrow through paper and it was a bullet hole and that was it. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like super easy to tune, you know, stays in tune well. Um, but for me, man, my, the only, I'm not going to make a ton of updates this year, man. I'm always kind of tweaking my, my saddle gear and my setups, you know, just trying to be more efficient. Um, and I'm moving probably like I hunted the last hunt of the year with a one stick setup. Um, and I liked it. Um, and so I'm probably going to move to using a, a one stick kind of climbing method. I would say like 90% of the time, I don't know when I wouldn't use it. Um, maybe if I have a camera guy with me or something like that, I would, I would use sticks instead, obviously. Um, or maybe if there's like a spot, I'm going to leave stick or leave sticks on a tree or something like that, that I'm going to be going back to that. I know of or something, you know, that might be the case, but, um, I think that's going to be like my big change this year is that, um, I got a set of the tethered one sticks and actually was one sticking with it this past weekend, because a lot of the stuff that I heard was, you know, people kind of saying like, ah, how are you going to one stick with this? Or I'm not sure it would work for a one stick because of the, the wrapping mechanism and stuff like that. But I went out and one stick with it this weekend and it worked fine for me. And they're stupid light, you know, so it's, you know, I was like, I think it's half the, half the weight of the stick that I built, you know, like in totality. So that's eight or in all. So that's probably going to be, be my biggest change. Uh, upgrading my boots. That's a big thing for me this year, man. It's like, I've gone through a pair of boots every year that I've had to get new boots every season um, or every following season. So this year I actually just ordered a pair of Kenetrek hard scrabbles. Mm-hmm. So it's still kind of staying in that hiker realm, but something that's a little bit more versatile to where I can use for whitetails, but can also um, hunt out West with them, you know, but they're not super heavy. I think they were only like three and a half pounds And the uh, Solomons I'm using now are like three pounds and they're just not, they're not, they're not standing up to the abuse, you know, they're falling apart right. within, they're falling apart within a season. Um, actually they start leaking prior to the end of the year and then through an off season, like they're shot, you know, so those are probably the biggest upgrades for me this year. For the most part, everything else is pretty, pretty locked in, man. I have what I have. I like what I, I like what I use. Um, I made that little DIY mod for my bow hanger. Other than that, yeah, that was cool. Yeah. Out of Kydex, you know, so it's all attached to my bow so I can just slide it into my, my hitch strap when I'm in the tree. Um, yeah, that's it. You know, nothing too, nothing too crazy. Just those minor things. It's nice when you finally get a system together, man, and you're not like changing out huge pieces of your gear from year to year. Cause I've gone through that and it's just a pain in the ass. Yep. It is. You know, so, all right, here's the, here's another one, maybe more specifically for me, but you can weigh in on this cause you, cause you know people from all over, but this person's asking the hottest County to deer hunt in Pennsylvania. My answer to that is none of them. And where, <laughs> and, and wherever I'm not, <laughs> or not wherever I'm at is maybe a better way to put it. <laughs> no, 
I mean, in all honesty, you know, I, I think, you know, and I hate even saying it on the podcast and I've tried to downplay it maybe a little bit, but PA has gotten, gotten increasingly better. Um, you know, even just shit, man, like three years ago, like I, w- I was having a hard time finding the caliber of deer that I found this year on, on public, you know? Um, so I don't know like where the hottest is, like depends on what you deem the hottest. Are you looking for dope or are you looking for like deer density numbers and encounters? Are you looking for big deer? You, you know, it just depends on what you're looking for, but there's a ton of little honey holes in PA now that I think you can kind of drop into that are, you know, Litzinger and I were kind of joking about it the one day he was like, you know, he's like, uh, and he, and I think Johnny Stewart, he, those two were talking about it, kind of joking about that another 10 years, Pennsylvania is going to turn into the next Ohio. Cause it's starting to get a better caliber of deer and people just don't quite know about it yet. And, um, once they start to figure it out and find out where those pockets are, people are going to stop driving through Pennsylvania from New York and Connecticut and start stopping in PA before they get to Ohio. That um, would be wonderful. Yeah. No, screw you, man. <laughs> Keep going to Ohio. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but, uh, I don't think we're there yet. I, look, I don't think you're going to find the caliber of deer consistently here as you will find in other Midwestern states. That's just, I don't think is a possibility. Um, I think in pockets you can for sure. Um, but just not on a consistent basis. So as far as a County goes, I I don't know, I guess look on like a Boone and Crockett map and see where good deer are consistently being killed would maybe be one where to look. Um, but I think my stock answer is, is that I think they're in places where people don't realize and you just need to spend the time to find them. And yeah. I think that that's the truth of it, which is why I'm doing that whole thing going north to the big woods here on the eastern part of PA because I'm like, I know there's big deer there. I'm just going to go find them, you know. So yeah. I think that that's the, the true answer. Well, um, I have never hunted Pennsylvania, so I don't have any firsthand experience to provide a firsthand answer. But from a non resident perspective, if I was going to buy a non-resident license and tag to hunt Pennsylvania, I would find myself in the northwest part of the state, mm-hmm. um, both because of public land opportunities and because of the age structure caliber um, mm-hmm. of deer that have been coming out of there over the last at last several years. Yeah. So that's that would be my answer, somewhere in the northwest. <clears throat> yeah, and that's probably, if I were if I were doing it from a destination hunt standpoint, that would probably be my answer too. being that I'm a resident here. It's, and I have time here, right. It's like, I'm, I feel pretty confident that I can find good deer and I'm proving it out in this general area where I'm at, you know, that I've had the opportunities to know that there are good deer around in this area. Um, so I think you can find them in other places, but if I were looking for a concentration in the best opportunity, yeah, I would, I would be going where you're going for sure. Just land opportunity unto itself would, would give you the chance to kind of roam and, and have a better chance to, to, to find a nice pocket of, of things without having to jump parcels or jump pieces necessarily, or pick up camp, if you will. But yeah. cool. Well, this next question, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll toss this one to you. You can take, you can tackle this one first. This uh, fellow writes in says with a new piece of ground, do you think it's worth, worth it to start hanging cameras in March? So perfect question for you since we have the, trail camera expert on the podcast today yeah if it's a new piece of ground i would um i'd get a a quick a start as possible i don't think necessarily there's a ton of information that you're going to gather in march that you're going to be able to single out a deer and kind of 
to hunt and you know make a play on in the fall but knowing you know what general deer are in the area knowing that they're there in the summer because maybe it's a um, a certain type of you know summer habitat and knowing that possibly those deer could possibly shift in the fall but during the rut come back to that summer habitat you know don higgins talks about that um, Mark Jury talks about that. There's a lot of guys talk about that um, coming home party where bucks are coming back into their, you know, their summer range uh, during the rut for, you know, that seven days, 10 days, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. that looks like. So, yeah, if there's a new piece, I would run cameras on it as fast as I could get there. Yeah. Now, similar, similar answer here. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of of the mind of put out cameras when you have time. <laughs> if you have time, like just from a time standpoint, like I'm not even talking about a strategy standpoint at this moment for me, it's when I have time to get them out, I get them out because I don't know if I'm planning to put them out in July, something happens. I get tight on time. I can't get to all the places I want to get to. And then I'm screwed. If I just would have put them out in March, you know, then it would be, they would be there and I'd be done. So that's one reason I would put them out. The other reason, and I actually went through this when my dad bought that new piece of property because I knew nothing about it. I didn't even hunt it for the first year. I just put cameras up on it for the first year. Um, and the reason being was that I was trying to look at, you know, the the terrain features in, area, in areas I thought that were going to use deer. Some of it I could tell because I could see sign that was laid down or, or trails that were being used and stuff like that. But maybe it was more subtle things, you know, like small little depressions and stuff I wanted to see if they were going to use. I put cameras out to try to understand how they were going to use the property. Like, how do they move? Do they move more north and south? Do they move east and west? Do they cut diagonally across the property? Like, I just wanted to figure out directionally where were they moving and what pieces of the terrain, like what terrain features were they going to most frequently use? Just outside of season, just travel in general. Like, what's the most appealing aspects of it? And then the other part was, like, when I started to, you know, whenever they started going into velvet and stuff like that, then I could start to determine, you know, a little bit better. What is the the buck to doe ratio? Like, do I have a lot of bucks that are around that might be summer in here? And like the does are always going to be there. So how many does do I have? Is there a ton of does? Like what's the deer density look like? You know, just some of those base things that you need to understand about a piece that you're going to walk into, whether it's public or private. So you have a base knowledge of what the hell is going on on that piece of ground before you walk onto it. And yep. at that point, it's like, it doesn't hurt to ever put them out. There's certain little, to your point, to Chad's point, you're not going to find a deer today in March, you know, that you're going to kill in the fall necessarily. But what you can figure out is that, hmm, do they like this saddle or don't they, you know what I mean? Or do they like this, you know, uh, top third of this Ridge or not, you know what I mean? It's like, it's just those small things that might help you out or just get there faster. And when you do start to put boots on the ground in the fall, you maybe have already confirmed some things that you had that were hypotheses before. So certainly valuable. I think in my opinion, it sounds like yours yep. too. Yep. Absolutely. Cool. So this next fellow writes in says, when and where are you coming to Kansas? He says, I'm south of south of Wichita. So I don't know that we can divulge the the where. We can maybe speak in general in very general terms. That's a loaded question. So um but we can we can say the when. <laughs> you, you want to take this one first? I'll see how I'll see how much you dance around the where and then that'll help me. Well, I'll, I'll give them the where. We're going to be west of Wichita. There I'll you give go. Them that. Uh, west west of Wichita, and we'll be there in November. Yes. I don't know that I need to add an, add, add anything to that. I think we're going to be I'll, – actually, I'll add this. We're going to be where hopefully the deer are, <laughs> west of Wichita, <laughs> in, in, in some areas that don't have a lot of trees. I think that that's the other, the other thing is, uh, you know yeah. – 
you know, I think just topographically speaking, you know, when Chad and I've kind of talked about it, just some stuff that we've maybe picked up. Um, and if anyone has listened to the session I did with John Eberhart, we talked a little bit about Kansas and he talked a little bit about, you know, um, you know, looking at those like runoffs and stuff like that, which can be good. But then I've talked to some other folks that were like, and eh, you kind of want to stay away from those, you know what I mean? Like those are going to just attract people. So, you know, that's, if there are people where you're at, you can bank on them being there and in like the river bottoms and creek bottoms and stuff like that, stay away from that stuff and try to find like unique little land features that are kind of seem like they're out in the middle of nowhere. You know what I mean? And those are the areas that almost act like deer magnets or whatever. So maybe that's a better answer of, of, or a little bit of an addition to the, to the where answer. Cause you know, we'll do a wrap up podcast after we go to Kansas and come back and we'll tell everyone where we're at. So that sounds like a deal. <laughs> yeah, there we go. All right. So this fella here writes in and says, fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Uh, So similar to the previous, uh, maybe not. How do you break down a large piece e-scouting? Do you have a system in place to narrow down? Good so, question. Yeah. So do you want to you want to take this one or you want me to take a stab first? Uh, yeah, you can take a stab if you want. All right. Um so yeah, it's it's a lot of uh it's a lot of time behind the uh the the computer uh computer screen and then hoping and praying when I get No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it's you know, it, it, it's a lot of the I think stock things that a lot of people have talked about before, I think at the base level, you know, it's avoiding where people are going to potentially be. It's all, I'm not going to reiterate all those things. The honey public has done a great job of kind of like talking through like how to like X out spots on maps really, really quickly. Um, so I follow a similar process that, that, that they do in terms of trying to get away from people, easy access, going to mark that off right away. Um, I think the one thing for me is, it depends on what the terrain and topography kind of is of the, of the area I'm going to be hunting. Cause it's a little bit different from place to place. So if I'm going somewhere like where Chad and I hunt together in the Midwest that has, you know, a lot of, a lot of topo and stuff like that, it's like, I'm going to try to like, not just signal out after I do my deduction of like 90% of this is not where I'm going to hunt and then focus in on that 10% that I'm interested in based on access and all the things I just kind of mentioned. Then I'm going to start looking at what are the terrain features that I think are going to be decent setups that deer are going to potentially use also in context of time of year, you know what I mean? So it's like what you're going to look for early season is going to be different than what you're looking for in the rut versus late season. I'm using rut as an example, because that's usually when people are doing what they're doing their e-scouting for is for a trip somewhere. But what I'm not going to do is like, you know, some of this is a little bit of a, you know, a learning curve too. And so this is something I picked up from Chad in the one particular place that we hunt, like a lot of times I would look at saddles and what I learned in one, this particular area is that saddles are almost sure fire away to not see anything during daylight. And so from that learning, when I go to big woods, now I start looking less and less at saddles and I start trying to find more, you know, like big benches or whatever, or just like big, you know, benches that kind of dump into like an opening that kind of provides like an area for gear to congregate or whatever. And maybe I get lucky and there's a, you know, a, a tree dropping acorns in that area or that there's a scrape there. So 
it's really trying to look at how like a couple pieces start to come together in those areas. The one thing I've learned by spending time in the big woods with Chad, um, it's where does that saddle kind of connect with like a ridge system that's kind of long that the deer, deer are going to want to travel that has like a really significant, you know, bench system that kind of connects with it. Like you find those couple things, Yahtzee, thermal hub, a couple points dumping down into an area. I might not ever hunt that thermal hub because the wind's going to be a bitch. And you're going to have a hard time hunting it. And unless that's the only place you have an opportunity, then you have to roll the dice and just go with it. But I'm going to look there and find the sign and then try to start to backtrack from that sign to figure out, okay, where are the terrain features from here that that deer is going to potentially use, you know, or a deer could potentially use. So that's how I would start to break down some of the, like hill country or big woods or whatever. For me around here, I go honestly straight to the satellite imagery because I hunt a lot of flat ground and swamps and I'm looking for, it's super simple. Look for edge. Anywhere there's diversity of habitat, I'm looking for changes in changes in habitat. I want to see it go from hardwoods to swamp or from swamp to like, you know, uh, you know, like a fallow field or whatever it is. Like I'm looking for those significant hard edges because deer are going to lay down sign there. They're going to use those to travel. And that's a good starting place for me to at least go find sign and figure out where I'm going to go from there. Still not proficient yep. at the flat ground yet. I'm better whenever I have some elevation. The flat ground still gives me trouble, but that. I've learned that the hard way on my own, but it's also something that the times I've spent with Dan Enfault, he's reinforced that kind of philosophy for me is that, look, find the edge, work the edge. And if you don't know anything else, or if you can't figure anything else out, just follow the edge until you run into sign. Yep. So, yeah, I don't, I mean, you pretty much covered all bases. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's not, I mean, there's not a whole lot there for me to, to, to really add to the one thing I would say, is that I, what I started to do last year, a little bit Missouri, and I've even done it more this year, digitally scouting, is trying to wind map areas digitally. Mm, yeah. um, when you start to understand thermals and how wind is going to act in different types of vegetation or water features or even terrain features, if you can pinpoint some of those transitions and edges from bedding, so you basically start at the bedding opportunities first, um, look at those transition lines, look at those edge lines and kind of you're guessing really, but guessing where their point B is. So the bedding's point A and some destination type food sources is, is type B. But when you're looking at those transitions, wind mapping that by looking at historical weather data. So you're looking at wind speeds, you're looking at prevailing wind directions and you know, there, you can name countless variables, but um, those are the two big ones and trying to identify what the wind is going to do in some of those areas, not only for hunting, but also for scouting. Because a lot of times when you're digi- mm-hmm. digital scouting, um, you know, you're framing your hunt probably around the rut. Um, maybe it's a spot you've never been been to. And at times, if you go in and scout that wrong uh, or the, with the wrong frame of mind, you can potentially burn uh, a good opportunity if your scouting is on point. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important and something that no one's really, I mean, guys talk about wind mapping um, while they're scouting or while they're hunting just to know what this wind is doing at that particular location while they're there. Right. Which but you is only really, get that really one, important. It is, but you still, you only get that one data point, right? It's like you get, you yeah, it's, drop, like, cause you and I did it when we were scouting last year, we found that one bed and we were like, all right, let's drop some milk. We didn't see what's going on here, but it was only for that particular wind and it right. might be one of those odd areas where it's like, no matter if you have a north, a south, an east, a west, whatever wind, like you're always going to get a southwest in that spot. Like there are those anomalies that you have. Yes. But you won't know that until you hunted that spot on every single wind or you've scouted that spot on every single wind. 
Right. But the cool thing is once you once you're wind scouting in person, like boots on the ground, whether you're hunting or scouting, and you start to wind map those areas, you get a feel for what the wind does in certain types of terrain, certain um, aggressiveness of that terrain, like the steepness of the ridge, certain mm-hmm. vegetation, certain water features. And when you start to build a uh, index of that information from prior experience, you can use that while you're digitally scouting when you're looking at sim- similar t- uh, topography, similar terrain features, similar uh you know, vegetation, similar water features, you can almost predict what the wind is going to do um, by looking at that stuff. And I think that's something that a lot of guys overlook is trying to do that digitally. And and you're still like, it's not an exact science. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes satellite imagery is outdated. Maybe the, the, the topo map is not even correct. I mean, I've been in, we've both been in areas um, oh, yeah. in like reclaimed strip mine stuff where it's really hard to read a topography map. And sometimes they're not accurate. So it's not always an exact science, but it will definitely give you an edge. Um, and it's something that a lot of guys are not, are just simply are not doing or not talking about. Yeah. I think to go back on what you just said with, you know, a lot of times the stuff you're looking at online, even like the best apps that are out there today aren't a hundred percent accurate. You know what I mean? Like they're only as good as the, as the, the County data that you get from the counties, right. And however often they, they make updates to their database. Um, for the, for the map imagery and stuff like that. And so I think what, I think the thing that some guys do is they rely so much on e-scouting and then their plan gets blown to crap when they get there because it looks nothing like what they scouted. And so I think the one thing I've learned, you know, and you know, people take it for what it's worth is like, don't be so rigid in your e-scouting, like use it to kind of lay a framework and then know that that framework is going to have to adapt because chances are, well, when you get there, it's not going to be what you saw online a hundred percent. And then in bad scenarios, like you and I have run into, it's nothing like what we saw when we, when we were e-scouting, you know, it was like, couldn't be more different, you know? And right. so then it's like, well, what's your plan then? And if that was your only plan, then you, then you, you're in trouble, you know? And yeah. so I would say contingency plans and expect it to not look like it look like it looks on the map would be my, yep. would be my suggestion, you know? Yeah. You um, gotta have options. Yeah. The other thing is too, man, when you're e-scouting, I think people just get focused in on, you know, e-scouting isn't just looking at maps, right? And I think you pointed that out with like, with wind, you know, it's also, you know, looking at, um, you know, I'll, I'll give a plug here to our you know, a buddy from Spartan Forge, you know, like him, like using predictive modeling to look at when deer are going to move in that area and they can kind of, tell by like radio call like by collared deer and stuff like that just to understand movement more specifically right and looking at what those prime like rut dates are like for areas based on like you know uh the fetus data and stuff like that so you know within a window of time like when that action is going to happen and when the most movement could and should be right so e-scouting doesn't just mean e-maps it means (laughs) e-information right so it's like you know i wouldn't stop at just the map it's like if you're going to a state like man you know, look at the maps, look at what the, what the rut timing is, like when they're, when they're dropping fawns, what their movement predictions are. If you're a person who subscribes to the moon and stuff like that, look at what those moon phases are going to be like, you know, on the, you know, the, the, the backside and the front side of a full moon that's close to rut. You know what I mean? It's like, if that's something you follow, like those are things you want to pay attention to. And so I wouldn't just stop it at map map scouting it's like i would try to get as much in your arsenal that you use everyone not everyone uses all of it and that's fine 
But whatever it is you're comfortable using, I would try to gather all that before you start to lay boots on the ground so you fully understand what the area has to offer. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that's a that's a really valuable point. Another great tool, you'd be surprised how much people tell on Facebook, like in different groups or different forums. Oh, yeah. And it's not necessarily going in and you know making a post in the community saying, hey, I'm hunting this area. What can you guys, I'm looking for some tips. I'm looking for the hot spot. Like nobody's going to give their spot away. But if you go through those threads and use the search bar, like mm-hmm. use the search tool and search specific areas or specific terms. Um, I know I've done that with already in the, in the couple units that my tag is valid for in Idaho. Mm-hmm. And I've found some really, really helpful information without ever engaging in actual conversations with other people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I'm just thinking off the top of my head, right? Like if I know I'm going to go to Kansas this year, for example, right? I might search around for like Kansas bucks or Kansas bow hunting or something like that, right? And find a forum and flip back through all the forum posts and go to like the time frame that is around, oh, I don't know, mid-October to say mid-November and scroll through the posts for that 30-day period and see whenever I see pictures of people with the throwing bucks down how for how like how when does that pick up and that'll start to tell me like when the movement starts to pick up right and then it's like i can start to maybe find a couple guys that like hey they're from this general area okay this town's close to that unit i'm gonna hunt let me click on him let me check him out real quick who are his friends they're probably big bow hunters too let me check them out too you know you can just what you refer to that in the marketing and advertising world is social scraping, you know, <laughs> like where you go through and you just find data that's that's publicly available and you just scrape the information and then weed out what you don't need and, and retain what you do need. And so super valid tool. I've never personally done it, but I'm going to start doing it now. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I think we covered that one pretty well, man. Anything else to add to that one? Or are, you, are we good? No, I, I think we're good. Cool. This next one is, what would you recommend to someone just starting a podcast? Okay, I'll, I'll let me take a stab at this one first, or you want to take it? Well, you've been doing it longer than we have. Um, you're way more professional than we are, so let me give my answer, my, my, uh, my amateur rookie answer first. I would say, just start doing it. You're going to probably suck uh, when you first get started, and you might may not suck as bad as what I sucked or what Jake sucked or what we sucked as, as on, on our end. Um, but you will definitely get better with the more content that you put out. So I would say minimal entry, get the, um, kind of the bare necessities, get a recorder, get a headset and just, and just get started. Right. That's, that's great advice. Mine would be don't, um, <laughs> it will eat up a lot of your time. No. Um, you know, I, I think everything Chad said is, is spot on. Like you're going to suck before you rock. That was my philosophy when I was in a band and we were writing a new song and it always sounded like shit before it all came together. And you were like, man, this riff is killer. It's going to be a great tune. It's going to rip. We just need to get it all together. And we would go through like two weeks of rehearsal of it sounded like garbage until everyone got on the same page. And then it was, a, it was a ripper, you know, it's the same thing with podcasting. Like it just, you know, I would say focus on the things that you're good at. You know, like if you're really, you know, for me, it's like I talk a lot for work and I had a background in audio and in a musician and stuff like that. And so the technical side for me was easy. You know, the content side was the harder part for me. So like for me, I spent more time thinking about who my guests are and planning that stuff out. And when I started early, man, I actually literally I would write a I'd write a uh, an interview 
uh, questionnaire, you know, or discussion guide, you know, because I knew that that was something that I wasn't good at. Like I wasn't good at like off the cuff necessarily. I have a bad memory just in general. And so I don't remember the next thing unless I write it down that I need to touch that I need to get to. And so I would make an outline. And like when I first started, they were really robust. And now it's literally like I put three bullet points on a piece of paper and I do a podcast, you know, cause it's like, I've just done it so much that just, it's, you know, I've worked myself into that. But what Chad said, which is just like, get the lowest barrier to entry, you know, gear that you need to get started and just start doing it. The only other thing that I would add is that know your why and really ask yourself if, if it's worth the, if the why is worth it, you know, if the goal is to do it because you think it's super glamorous and cool and you're going to become the next Joe Rogan or Steve Ranella or whatever, <laughs> like I got news for you. It's probably not going to happen. You know, uh, the market's pretty saturated in general, right? So carving out your little area is going to be tough. Even if you do a really good job of differentiating yourself and being different, it's still going to be a struggle because there's, it's just a really saturated space in general. Um, but if you're doing it because you think you're going to make money and you're going to meet brands and whatever, then it, like I would say, just don't even waste your time because it's going to be more work than you're going to be willing to do because the, the, the value you're going to get back in terms of monetary value, your first probably two to three years is going to be diddly squat. And so you're yeah. basically going to do like a good two to three year run before you really make a dime off of it. And that's just the reality of it. And it's even more so now because there's so many options. There's so many options for, yep. you know, brands to go to, to market and stuff like that. And they're willing to do it for nothing. So like, you know, if that's your motive, then I would say it's not worth, not worth the time. But if your motive is just to kind of like meet people and BS and have a good time and, and enjoy doing it, then like have at it, man, like rock it out. Like, I think you totally should do it. So I think yeah, that's, that's good advice. That's my answer. Anything do you think we covered that one or anything else to add there? I think that's solid. Solid? Yeah. So minimal entry gear and then make sure it's something you actually want to do. And don't plan to get money. Get paid. <laughs> <laughs> it's a free job. Um, the next one is actually this one's podcast related too. It said, what drove you to start a podcast? So you can take this one first again if you'd like. Well, for us, it was just another form of or I guess another communication tool to help educate people on trail cameras. I mean, that was the sole reason um, that we started a, a branded podcast behind, um, you know, behind, behind Exodus. I mean, there's always the intent of, you know, building a following and monetizing that following for us. That's, you know, product sales. But as you stated, like understanding your why is the biggest kind of driving factor behind the consistency, because I think you really do have to be consistent if you want to be successful in this space. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that why for us was being the authoritative figure to help educate people. And we talk about it all the time. It doesn't matter. You know, I would say a third of our listeners don't even run our cameras. They, they probably run wild game and the $25 Tascos because they're on public land and in the big woods. And they don't want to get them stolen. And, um, and that's fine. There's still, you know, a need for somebody in our space to kind of be that authoritative figure. And unfortunately digital trail cameras been, have been around since, uh, you know, the early 2000s, 99, 2000, 2001, 2002. And no one has really stepped up to the plate to really tell people how these things work. So for us, you know, that was, that mm -hmm. was it. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, it, it goes back to the why, right? Like, like I was saying before, and for me, it was, you know, I didn't have, I, you know, I don't have, I don't work in the outdoor industry per se. Um, you know, people ask, like, I don't consider this to be an outdoor industry job, the podcast, you know, it's like, I, I like to say that I work in the periphery of the outdoors, <laughs> of the outdoor industry to a degree, um, because I just have a lot of respect for people who do work in the outdoor industry. And I wouldn't, that's not my, what I wake up every day to do, you know? And so it's like, I don't want to, you know, pretend that I play in that space full time. But the reason why I started the podcast truthfully is because I fell in love with bow hunting and I wanted to get better at it. And I, you know, truthfully, I was like, no one's going to talk to some dude that lives North of Philadelphia. You know, they've never met before. You know, I was listening to other podcasts and I was reading books and, you know, and watching DVDs of, you know, Dan Enfault and whatever. And I was like, man, I want to meet these guys, you know? Um, and I was like, I don't know how I'm, no one's just going to give me their number. I can't just call these people up. I was like, I got to have a reason. So I was like, well, you know, I work in marketing and advertising. Like, so if I have a podcast or a platform I can use to help them, you know, um, gain, you know, uh, exposure, then maybe they'd talk to me. You know, that was really the, the rationale. It was like, I, I needed to buy friends. <laughs> um, and it's, I laugh, but it's partially true, you know, cause I, I moved to this area. I didn't have any friends that really hunted or anything. Um, you know, cause I was working in advertising. It's all pretty, you know, they're, they're pretty urban, you know, folks. And so I didn't have anyone to cut up with and stuff like that. And I was like, I want to meet people who are like me, who are interested in like learning about bow hunting that want to be better at bow hunting. And along the way, it's like, I would like to create like a group of people that I can call my friends that I can kind of, you know, talk to about bow hunting and create this like community or whatever in these friendships. And that was really why I started it. And then it morphed from there and, it, and like, and all things do, it's like, it never ends what it started to be. And I never thought I would be going into five years. I thought literally if it lasted six months, I was going to be surprised, you know, and here we are, there'll be five years this summer that I've been doing this thing and met a lot of killer people met you through the podcast. You know, that was how our friendship started. And you're now one of my best friends and we hunt together and we have a great time. And, you know, Johnny Mulligan and those guys, I've had got the opportunity to talk to the guys that I look at and just think that they're the, some of the best deer hunters I've, I've ever known of or whatever. And that to me is just super rad. But over time it pivoted from that to where it's like, you know, people were along for the ride to learn with me, which was super cool. Cause I was like, I have questions about things. I'm sure other people do too, you know, and they just don't have a resource to ask. So let me be their resource and I'll ask the question. Um, and then it started pivoting more into, you know, DIY type of stuff. And it just, you know, it grew and changed as I grew and changed. And I never tried to make it anything other than that. It was never more than a reflection of what I was going through, you know, as a, as a, as a bow hunter. Um, and I don't really have any plans and, and, you know, never did to say it's going to be this thing. It's just always going to be an organic thing of who I am and where I'm at in that moment in, in time. And, you know, and right now it's really focused on a DIY you know, public land bow hunter and how can I be more efficient and make some of my own stuff that doesn't kill me? <laughs> you know, so that's really why, why I started it, man. That was, that was, that was it. And it'll end whenever I feel like I don't have anything else to offer. It'll be that simple. So do we do we, anything to add to that one or we think we're good to go there? No, I think, uh, I think we can move on. Yeah. Cool. So I think we have like three more here. Um, this fellow writes, how consistent are buck bedding areas on an annual basis in your personal experiences? Well, I can tell you in the big woods, in the 
the areas that I am most familiar with and spend the most time that betting can be as random as it can be consistent. And I think it depends on the individual deer. And unless you really understand that individual deer and have a crap ton of data points, it's really hard to figure out whether it's random or consistent. Um, now I think that from like a B style perspective or, or if you follow that upper one third, um, that Dan always talks about and, you know, spurs and points. I mean, you can walk some of these bridges and just almost pinpoint where a bed is going to be. And a lot of times there are beds there, but to find one like worn to the dirt where the same deer is using it, you know, year over year, over year, over year, I just have not had much success, um, with that method methodology. Now, I think that you can kind of isolate that area and know that that deer is going to be bedded somewhere within that area. And maybe it's a, maybe it's 20 acres or maybe it's 15 acres, maybe it's 10 acres, maybe it's just a point or a, a spur or a specific spot on that ridge. But, um, to narrow it down to a single bed is, is really difficult. Um, I think it probably gets a little easier with limited bedding opportunity, like an ag mm-hmm. ground or in, or in swamps. But, um, you know, I just don't have as much experience in that to, 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 you know, have any input, I guess. Yeah. Now I think my answer would be similar to, similar to yours. It's like, I've, and I've talked about it on the show. It's like, I've struggled to find good, consistent bedding. And at times I've, I've located some, you know, that was decent bedding areas, I would say. Um, I think the one thing, like you were talking about, like when you were saying finding specific beds, you know, there's been a handful of times where I found them that were worn to the dirt. And when I say handful, literally it's less than the hand, the fingers on my hand, <laughs> you know, on one hand. Um, the one was that one spot in the, in the big piece where we, where we hunt together and it was down where they actually clear cut recently. I remember I was like, I'm going to go down here and see if there's a, a bed down on this point or whatever. And I walked up and there sure enough was a, was a bed on that point. And that was one of those times looking at the map. You're like, man, that looks like there should be a bed right there. And there was, yep. but for as many times as I've done that a hundred times more often, I've gone and looked in those spots and didn't find what I thought I was, what I thought I was going to find. I think what I've noticed maybe more consistently is like the, at least the places that I've, that I hunt for consistent betting would be maybe rut betting or what I found and what I suppose to be rut betting, because those are going to be what I feel like is maybe more consistent based on how the. Um, you know, how does are moving, um, and how they're kind of using it, how, how they're using a, a, a ridge or, or a scrape that they're hitting frequently or whatever the case is, you know, and there's a couple in that big piece that we hunt together that I'm thinking of off like a ridge where we see that one bed that's like used every year. It looks like, right. It's always worn down. There's the other one that we found off the other side this past off season that was below the, um, the scrape where we had the, the cell camera on you know, that we found that bed that was worn down. So it's like there's, and I would, I would assume those are rut beds. Cause I don't know why they would be bedded there any other otherwise, essentially, right. you know? Um, but around here in PA, I've not really stuck. I've found one specific bed last year and I assumed it was a, just a good bedding area. And it was during the summer cause I had bucks all through there. So like, you know, now is it year over year? I don't know. I'll have to monitor it this year and see if it's the same or not. Um, but they all disappeared right after like second week of October. So it's obviously not great for hunting season, you know? So that was felt like it was more of like a summer bed. And I think you're right. It's like when you have less bedding opportunities, those deer, you know, it's more consistent. Um, on the family farm, you know, there was one spot that I knew there was a buck bed at all the time. Could never kill the buck that bedded there. Cause it was off, off like this 
uh, we called it the Raven Cliff, and there was like a big cliff drop on the other side, and he was bulletproof in there. Like you could only really get in one way and out one way, and he would know you were there. There was you could only walk the field edge to get into him, and he could see you from a hundred yards away. You were never gonna never gonna get him. And so no one ever killed the deer that lived that the deer that bedded in that consistently. There was always one in there every year because someone would jump him as they were walking by. He would jump out every year. But so I don't know if we answered that. I mean, I think that, yeah, there's certain areas that probably have annual consistency. And when you find those, mark those and don't tell anybody, (laughs) you know, otherwise I think that like what Chad said, they're probably, you know, at least for my experience is probably more, more random and less consistent would be my opinion. But, uh, all right. The next one is more scouting. This one is how do you e-scout Southeast PA with there being such limited, uh, topography features, uh, in this area. So I guess this is more just low lying flatland, I think is less specific to like Pennsylvania specifically. So I would go back to what we mentioned before. You know, I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on this one. It's, transition lines, hard edges, like that's, that's the place to start. Um, first and foremost, if it's swampy, you know, if there's an area of swamp where it's wet, like that's the first place I'm going to walk to, um, one, cause it's going to hold sign. I'm going to at least be able to see some sign that's still laid down. Most likely maybe catch some tracks if the dirt's damp or whatever the case is, get a sense of direction or, you know, whatever the case might be, but I'm really going to look for just those transition lines and hard edges that's going to be the place that i i start and then clear cuts you know they're obviously providing hard edges for you and stuff like that around those edges um you know that's the that's the other thing i would focus on but if it's swamp i'm looking for swamp meeting hardwood or smart swamp meeting some type of diversity of habitat and then if it's you know flat land but like not swamp specifically i'm looking have there have there been cuts that have been done that i can utilize so those are kind of yeah. my my fail safes yeah, I think it's the same. I mean, you're still going through the same steps. It's the same process. You're just taking topography out of the equation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in a sense, you could say it's easier, but on the flip side, you could say it's harder. Um, last year, we were looking at some pieces in Indiana and just digitally scouting where we would put, hypothetically go in and set up or scout or hunt. And a lot of that stuff was going back, looking at those, like you said, transition and edge um, and bedding opportunities, and then pinch points or funnels, you know, basically travel corridors between point A and point B. And um, I don't think that it needs to get much more complicated than that. I think that a lot of times, myself included, everybody is trying to get the entire puzzle put <laughs> together. Before they get there. Th- yeah. Through e-scouting. And I, and I think you just kind of, you're putting the cart before the horse um, to, to some extent. I think that digital scouting is, uh, it should be a jump start to the race to give you a, a, a head start. Um, but I still think that you need to be thinking about that area with boots on the ground and confirming, you know, your, your hypothesis about the, about those locations. Right. I think when I see questions about e-scouting, I think they're all valid. And I appreciate the questions. I think, you know, there, there, it's it's certainly useful and we use it a lot. Um, but I, I will say this, that if I have to choose, I want to go just put boots on the ground and I don't care what the map says. You know what I mean? Like if I'm not saying I don't care, I shouldn't say I don't care what the map says, but I would drop a single pin in an area and be like, it's this, I want to check out this area. I'm not, I won't, 
I would rather spend my time walking that area than I would trying to dissect that area on on a map. You know, that's if times if, yeah, if times right. not a not not a you know, if time's not an issue and you have all the time in the world, then I'm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's like I just you know, if it's something that's out of state, totally get it. But if it's something that's in your backyard, walk it. <laughs> you know, because like 100%. what you and I were talking about before is that it might not look the same as it does on the map, and you don't want to figure that out late in the game. You know what I mean? There's a lot of pieces I scouted last year. I scouted every public land piece within a half-hour drive of my house last year. Um, that was what I did with my time free from the with the pandemic. I just scouted like a crazy man. Um, and out of all the stuff that I scouted, I had probably four spots that were worth like hunting. You know what I mean? But it took me many weekends and many hours and many miles to figure, figure all that out. And a lot of them look dynamite from the map, you know, but if I would have relied on that and just waited, it's like, I would have never gotten through all of it. So I just like methodically made my way through each piece until I got through all the pieces. So maps, awesome boots on the ground, much better. Um, this question here is how much do you shed hunt or how much do you do? You know, do you shed hunt? I'll answer this real quick. Um, for me at least <laughs> not much. <laughs> I go out and make a, make a half-assed attempt every year to try to find some sheds. And usually the only time I find them is when I, is when I stumble, uh, stumble onto them. Um, that's, that's the truth of the matter. I just don't have the patience for it. Um, it quickly turns into a scouting trip for me. Anytime I'm in the woods, I just, there's value in finding the sheds. I get it. You know, a deer's alive, you know, a deer's probably living in that area, at least late season, you know? Um, so maybe it helps you make a late season plan per se. Um, but I'm just not very good at finding them. Um, and so I don't particularly spend a lot of time looking for them. If I've stumbled across them, great. And it's another piece of the puzzle, but I'm going to spend my time learning the the terrain and, and hanging cameras and, and doing those types of things, um, and reading sign. And if I can find a shed, awesome, but I'm not gonna lose sleep over it. Yeah. I think, um, our strategies in, in that sense are pretty similar. I've never been in a very high deer density area, which makes shed hunting pretty unfruitful. Now I have had the opportunity to go hunt or shed hunt some private ground, um, in Iowa. And it's like, we picked up 40 sheds in a day and it's <laughs> right. like the most fun thing ever. But realistically, you know, I don't have those opportunities very often. So I find myself most of the time, postseason scouting slash shed, shed hunting with the focus being on the scouting. And if I find a shed, like you said, then it's, it's, it's a bonus. But I think that there's guys that who like Jake, for instance, like he makes a conscious decision be, before he goes out today, I'm shed hunting, not scouting, or today I'm scouting, not shed hunting. Um, because I think that you, if you're trying to do both, you're not going to be very efficient at either. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's, it is a conscious decision, um, to be the most efficient at what you're trying to do, you know, to do that day. But, uh, for me, it's, you know, the same thing as you, it's postseason scouting. And if I find a shed, then, then great. Awesome. Um, yeah. 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 Same thing. The only time I will shed hunt is if I, uh, is if I'm in an area that looks like, uh, if I'm in an area that looks like, Hey, this, there could be a shed here. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, Oh, this I'm in a bedding area. I'll spend a little bit of time and, you know, and, and try to find a shed, but I'm not going to belabor it and I'll move on pretty quickly. Um, last question here. Um, we're at the end of the road. So this fellow says, 
What's your workout routine, and do you train with Hunting Hill Country in mind? Um, so I'll let you I'll let you take a stab at this one first. Um, yeah. So the you know topography and terrain is definitely a factor in what I do um, physically for putting stress on my body. Um, my routine is well, I'll say this: I work out. I don't have like a, a five day split or a three day split or four day split. I work out every single day that I can. Sometimes that's 20 days in a row, but then there's oftentimes where there will be a four or five day gap where I may not be able to get something in. And I look at it that way because as a living adult with a, you know, running a business or, or a job, a family, kids, like shit happens, yep. you know, and looking back at like a five day split, it's like, Oh, I missed, you know, I don't want to get be all stressed out because I missed a certain day inside of my routine. Right. Like, the, like I've been through that through my twenties, you know, with football and rodeo and like, it just doesn't make sense with a busy lifestyle. So I work out every single day and I do resistance training with weight. I do high intensity, uh, interval training. I do some cardio and, I'm smart about it. I'm 38 years old. I don't need to be jacking around 400 pounds anymore. Yep. Um, so a lot of the stuff that I'm doing, um, I do large like supersets or um, like giant sets where it's almost like circuit training mm -hmm. almost, but it's broken down into muscle groups where I might do three or four exercises in a giant set, um, you know, for my, for my delts or for my shoulders. And then, the back end of that workout is another giant set for my traps or, uh, you know, something like that. So, right. um, typically I'm doing a lot of compound movements. I'm not doing a bunch of bodybuilding isolation stuff. I'm doing functional movements, a lot of kettlebell stuff, deadlifts, pull-ups, push-ups, dips, um, yeah. things like that. I, I mean, I keep it really, really simple. And if you're going in and working out and you're sweating, and you're putting stress on your body, you will, you'll grow. You'll get you benefits. Become in, yes. You will, you will see physical and mental benefits. If you're putting stress in your body and you're sweating and you're going through that, you, you'll end up, you know, your endorphins will be released. Um, so that's, that's my take on it. And I don't get crazy on the nutrition side. I'm lucky that I have, um, I don't know. Crazy genes, metabolism. <laughs> yeah. Just, just good genes. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I keep it simple. And I go in there with a purpose to work hard. I get in and I get out. So yeah. uh, a typical workout for me is about an hour. Yeah. So we're very similar in the, in, in how we approach things. Mine's a lot the same, right? Is a lot of, a lot of hit cardio. Um, even my resistance workouts have a cardio component to it. So it's, you know, there's never really any more rest than like 20 seconds, 30 seconds in between any, any set or any, any movement. It's all compound movement movements and functional. I'm looking to have functional strength. I'm not a bodybuilder. I'm like you, I'm not looking to win any awards here, man. I'm trying to stay in shape and, and be healthy. Um, I do have somewhat of a, uh, an eating kind of philosophy that I follow, uh, for the, for the most part. Um, you know, it, I, I eat pretty healthy, just in, generally speaking, I do work in, you know, a fair amount of yoga, especially right now as I'm kind of working through the shoulder, you know, issue or whatever, I'm doing a fair amount of yoga. Um, and replacing that instead of resistance right now, just so I'm not adding additional stress. Cause I think I have some, um, uh, I guess it's like the bicep, like ligament tendon kind of issues and stuff that are going on is what I think it's been narrowed down to. Um, you know, so right now it's a lot of yoga and then I'll also change it up and like 
do a spin bike session and stuff like that, just to kind of like break the monotony of it. My philosophy is if I can't remember the routine on my own, then it's too long, you know? And so I'm more of like a 25 to 30 minute guy hit it first thing in the morning as hard as I possibly can. And then I'm, and then I'm done. Um, I might do something a little later in the day, you know, especially right now, like some type of physical therapy for my, my shoulder or whatever, and get that in, in the afternoon, maybe roll out or whatever on some like rolling balls and stuff like that. Um, but really for me, it's like, I'm not training with hunting in mind per se. Um, especially as I've gotten older, um, you know, when I started going and having, you know, doing chiropractic, a lot of chiropractic work done a lot of, I do a lot of massage therapy as well and cupping and stuff like that. So it's like, I take a more of like a holistic kind of approach to what I'm doing. Um, you know, they asked me a question when I started doing that of what I wanted to get out of it. And my answer to them was, I want to be able to do the things I do now at the same level. I enjoy doing them for as long as I can. So that includes hunting. I don't want to have to adapt how I like to hunt and where I like to hunt because my body won't allow me anymore. It's I want to maintain and do maintenance routines on my body to make sure that in 10 years from now, I'm not, I'm not reduced. That's the goal. It's not to be better today. It's to be as good 10 to 15 years from now. That's the, that's the plan. Um, and so I kind of take a, a longer view approach of it now. And that really is just more in the past, like probably a year and a half, two years that that was more like the, the path that I was on. So that's really my routine and my, my approach to my fitness overall. So anything else to add to that? Are we good? Oh, I think, um, well, the only thing I would add is that, you know, you don't need to be yeah, that's a, a marathon point. runner, like yeah. to kill whitetails. I, yeah. I, Western hunting hat does have a physical component to it. Some of the areas that we hunt, they have a physical component mm-hmm. to them, but you don't need to be an Olympic athlete <clears throat> to kill, to kill whitetails. No, you don't. No. And that's, that's a good, that's a, I think a good place to end this last question. This fella asks before I let you run, cause I know your, your phone's about to die. Um, is, uh, this fellow writes in and says location of that big deer from last year, you're killing me. And <laughs> my answer is it was mentioned earlier in the podcast. So if you listen to this very end, which I specifically put this question is the very last one. If you listen to the very end, the answer is at the beginning of the podcast. So with that, brother, man, I appreciate you coming on, dude. It's always good to catch up with you. We got to do more of these and, uh, hopefully I'll see you here in the not so, not so distant future for a turkey hunt and and a hang soon. Yeah, it was fun, man. Um, until next time. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there, too. I'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those two things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.